0: Welcome to a public lecture podcast from the University of Bath. In this lecture, Dr. David Horsell from the University of Exeter explores graphene, nature's thinnest material. Thank you very much, uh, and thank you very much for inviting me as well to give this lecture. Uh, my name is David Horsell, and I work, I'm a lecturer at the School of Physics at Exeter, and um, I'm working in. Uh, recently established Centre for Graphene Science, which is a collaboration between Exeter and Bath Universities. And I'll tell you a little bit about that centre uh, near the end of this presentation. So I'm going to tell you about this material that we're now studying. And an extraordinary, an extraordinary material that's only recently been discovered in the last uh, six years. Extraordinary in that Last year, uh, its discoverers won the Nobel Prize for Physics. So it's been taken very seriously uh, by both researchers and industry now. So this material's really come on leaps and bounds. Discovered in 2004. It's now at the stage where um, we're having, even uh, I came back last week, from a uh, week-long series of talks. Um, just dedicated to this material. So it's uh, quite an extraordinary sort of rise of this material. So what is it? We'll start really at what it's composed of. It's composed of carbon atoms. And carbon sits at the top of this triangle in the periodic table here. And I've grouped it with a few other interesting materials for industry. So there's silicon there, there's germanium gallium arsenide, all important in the technological industries. But carbon is an unusual material in, in many ways. And it's, it's sort of the basis of many different uh, materials. So let's look at the carbon atom. That's it sitting there with the nucleus and its electrons around it. And it binds with other carbon atoms. Combining in certain ways it will create diamonds, which are created out of just pure carbon, but it can bond in slightly different ways as well, to create organic molecules. So the basis of things like DNA or plastics. Uh, it's a component of steel. Carbon is found everywhere. And I said it, it's found in different forms. Well, if we look here, uh, what I've sort of seriously uh, called uh, three-dimensional, two-dimensional, one-dimensional, zero-dimensional, Materials. What do I mean by that? Well, the three-dimensional form of carbon is something we're, we're probably most familiar with. That's diamonds. And the diamond structure looks like this. This is how the carbon atoms combine to form diamond. We'll come back to this one in a minute. This is graphite, which we know uh, coming from things like pencils and graphite blocks. We know something a little bit more about graphite. Ones that we've probably heard about are things like uh, nanotubes, which are long strings of carbon atoms. You can see they're in a sort of little hexagonal uh, <coughs> bound carbon atoms there, forming a long cylinder of carbon so it extends beyond this picture here, and grouping into a sort of sphere, what's called Buckminster Fullery. It's a sort of cage of carbon atoms forming something like a football. I call them zero-dimensional because if I, so I'm confined in all possible directions. I can't escape from this ball. In the, in the nanotube, I can't escape this way, but I could escape along the tube. In diamond, I can move in any direction. But there was always... You can see, I've put the dates here of when these things were discovered. There was a thing missing, this two-dimensional object. And as I said, in 2004, in University of Manchester, This material was discovered for the first time and it was named graphene. So this is just a two-dimensional layer of carbon atoms, rather like a a piece of chicken wire, if you can imagine it. That if I have an atom at each point in this chicken wire, this would be a very large-scale version of this graphene crystal. So I've introduced where it sits in this group of carbon objects Let's go back, a, go back a step and uh, look at something we're more familiar with. And this is graphite. So what is graphite? The most familiar form we see graphite in is in a pencil. So pencils contain just clay mixed with graphite in this, in this core of this pencil. We might also be familiar with it in graphite grease. This is some lubricating grease composed of graphite. What it does, you can see this is a chunk of graphite crystal. I have one here as well. You can see it's sort of a layered type material. It flakes and it's, it's just a flat piece of material there. And it's composed of thin atomic layers of carbon atoms. And the reason it's so good at, let's say, drawing lines with a pencil or providing a graphite grease is, is because the layers of these carbon atoms can't be pulled in this direction very well, it's very, very strong. I can't do this, but if I have a few layers of them, this binding is quite weak. So in a pencil, as I draw a line on this this lovely table here, I leave a layer of graphite on the surface, simply because I'm shearing off these layers and leaving them on the surface of the table. The other interesting thing about graphite, which you might be less familiar with, Um, is one property that it has is diamagnetism. So if I take a piece of graphite, it's, it's not magnetic. I can't stick it to other pieces of metal. But it will react to a magnetic field. And actually, it's nature's best version of what's called a diamagnet. A diamagnet is something that always repels a magnetic field. Whether it's north, south, it'll always repel. So if I can get this technology working... I'm not very good with technology. Where are we? Change source visualizer. Let's see if it works. Ah, press to continue. If we zoom in here, this little block here is a series of magnets, and on this block, uh, they're actually orientated in different ways. So this is north, north, south, south. So they're all arranged in a peculiar way. But if I take a piece of graphite here, and I put it on top of these magnets, you can hopefully see when it floats. (laughs) That material is always repelling the magnetic field, whichever orientation it is. And actually this arrangement of magnets means that it's quite stable, quite happily sitting there in the middle. And It springs around, and it's actually quite a a long distance from the surface. So an unusual property of graphite. doesn't come into any thing on graphene at all in this talk. I just thought it was rather (laughs) elegant. If you'd like to see it at the front afterwards, feel feel free. Uh, Let's go back to my Okay. So we learned a little bit about graphite, and you can see already that when we go from graphite to graphene, they, they share something in common. But one of these layers of graphite is in fact graphene. So graphite is simply a stack of graphene layers. So that doesn't sound very interesting. So graphene is just a thin bit of graphite. That's all it is. So I've taken the stack of layers and this is what I'm left with if I take one of these layers out. And I put some dimensions on here. You may be familiar with them. these are very tiny dimensions here. We're less than a nanometer, one billionth of a meter. We're talking about sort of atomic scale dimensions here for this lattice crystal, not the size of this chicken wire, but much, much smaller. So we've got a material which is one atom thick. How on earth can we deal with it, and why is it interesting? So this is what I'm going to take you through in this talk is some of the properties of graphene, and also some of its applications, both in industry and in science. So I gave you this scale This was less than a nanometer, and I put other things on the the scale here to give you some feeling of the dimensions of this material. So we've got other materials, all of them actually containing carbon in various forms, Um, right down from one millimeter scale, which we can easily see with our our eye, down to, let's say, a a hair, uh, which is about 60 microns in size, so you can just about resolve that with the human eye. Then we go down this scale, we can start having to increase the size of objects in order to see them. So we've got a, we use an optical microscope to look at things like red blood cells, uh, viruses. But to go any smaller, to look at, the, say, DNA, or um, let's say uh, even this Buckminster Fullery molecule here, we have to use rather exotic forms of microscopy, so electron microscopes, rather than simple optical microscopes, and certainly not with the limit, limitations of the human eye. So we've got a problem. We've got a material that's so small in dimensions that how, how on earth can we, can we deal with it? How do we even know it exists? Well, one of the things of this um, uh, groundbreaking paper in 2004 by the Manchester Group was to show that graphene not only exists that you can you can manipulate it, you can see it. How did they produce it? Well, If I take a graphite block, a graphite source, let's say I take my pencil here, they did something very simple, very sort of Blue Peter in style. They took some sellotape. If I press the sellotape onto the surface of this pencil, and look what I've got on the surface of this tape, you'll see that I've got a little bit of graphite stuck there. And other rubbish as well, but a little bit of graphite. But it's rather thick graphite. I can see it quite easily. What they did is they, they took this sellotape and they pressed it together on top of the graphite and pulled it apart. What you find is, if you do that is that the graphene, uh, graphite that you see, this dark layer, becomes a little bit fainter. Because those graphite layers are being split apart. they do it again, it gets even fainter. And fainter. And it gets extremely faint after a little while. And you start doubting whether you've got any graphite left on there. But it's still there. So what they did next, they took this tape And they, they took a piece of silicon wafer. Just standard silicon wafer that's used in uh, technology industries. So nothing, Nothing extraordinary about this wafer material. And they pressed the sellotape onto its surface. Then they peeled it off. On the surface was left some rubbish, some dust. And if you look under the microscope at this, what I've just created here, you'll see something like this. This purple material is this wafer. And these blocks of colour here are chunks of this graphite material. So, okay, this is a very large chunk of material. But I can see that there's different colourations of material. And there's some very faint material here. What is this material? It must be different thicknesses of material they have on there. What they managed to prove was that the faintest material that they could see on this under the microscope, which I've highlighted in little yellow boxes here on this particular image, these small pieces of graphite are in fact only one atom thick. And they can see it visually under the microscope. Why you can see it is rather interesting. On this silicon wafer, which is in fact almost a like glass material, this is a sheet of of this material on glass. And it works in exactly the same way as if you uh, look on the surface of a road after it's (laughs) rained and you see some patches of oil. And you'll see some wonderful coloration of the oil. You'll see these rainbow-like colors. The reason for that coloration of the oil is simply because the oil and the water, they don't mix at all. And any light from the sun comes down and it starts interfering. And it will create an interference pattern, rather like you see on the surface of a CD. You'll see different colours coming up there. Exactly the same feature here with the oil and the water. And it's different thicknesses of the oil that give you different colours. In exactly the same way, different thicknesses of graphite on the surface of this wafer give you different colours. But it was an extraordinary result... But the faintest of these was proved to be a single layer of atoms. So that was their first part of this paper, to show that this material even exists. Why wouldn't it exist? Well, it was thought, theoretically, for many, many years before, decades before, that such a thing, such a two-dimensional array of atoms, just can't exist in nature. What it'll do is it'll just fold up. It will never exist as a flat sheet like this as a piece of material, but it was shown that that's not true. On the surface of this silicon wafer, this material exists. So what is it? And why is it different to graphite? It was waves of research after this initial 2004 discovery that starting to unpick all the the properties of this material. So the first thing we note, is that it it's two-dimensional. It's a single layer, and I can move anywhere in this plane, but I can't move out of it. It's truly two-dimensional. But the useful things for industry and for science are, firstly, that it's conducting. It conducts electricity. That's the first unusual thing. It's actually a metal, almost metallic in nature. Other useful things we will come, along, come to in this talk are the fact that it's transparent, It only lets small amount of light, Uh, it only reflects a small amount of light. This up here is a hole in a copper sheet with layers of graphene over the surface. So you can see that this is one layer of graphene, this is nothing here, it's just air, and this is two layers. And this is the transmission of light through that material. You can see as a function of the number of layers of this material, the transmission of light through it just decays in step-like form downwards. It gets darker and darker. So it is transparent, and it's actually, more importantly, it's transparent in a rather broad range of wavelengths. It's not just transparent to, let's say, blue light or infrared. It's actually transparent across all the optical spectrum. Other important things for industry and for science are the fact that it's very strong, Even my chicken wire here is fairly strong. I can't pull it apart. It's got rather strong forces associated with it. But it's flexible. I can bend it very easily, although I can't pull it apart. And we'll come to this a little bit later because it's rather interesting. It's impermeable. It means nothing can get through it. It's like a huge barrier for anything trying to pass through. But we'll come back to that in a little bit. All I want to emphasise now is that there are some unusual properties of this material. So the fact that it's conducting and transparent starts to make industry interested in um, and uh, applied physics people interested in this material because you can start to use it for real technological applications. For instance, in solar cells or LCD uh, televisions, you have these transparent conductors on the surface. At the moment, these are exotic materials. Indium tin oxide Popular material. It's a rather exotic and now becoming extremely expensive material. Indian prices have gone up water of magnitude over the past 10 years. It's really becoming quite an um, expensive material to use in this sort of technology. And also that indium tin oxide isn't flexible. It's rather brittle material so it's not uh, you can't use it in other more interesting forms of electronics. But graphene here, as an electrode, um, can be used in this solar cell technology or um, TFT technology. You can see here, this is a a cell in a television, well, a prototype cell, that now at the moment is optically transparent. You apply a voltage, as you do in a real um, pixel on a television, and it turns eventually black. So it's on-off state. You can see here that the graphene is performing exactly that role. So I've introduced the idea that it's optically transparent. Let's have a look at its, its uh, strength now as well. Let's test all of its physical properties. Some people have done this. So this is a picture, an electron microscope picture of a sheet of graphene, a sheet of carbon atoms, sitting over a series of holes. You can see that these holes have been covered by the graphene material here. And it sits across the holes. And what people did in these uh, initial experiments was to try and puncture the graphene with a needle, needle point. So pushing down on the graphene. And by this pushing, knowing this force, you can actually determine what the strength of the material is. They pushed with a silicon needle. So, what's normally used in this type of Uh, Strength tests are just silicon needles. made of exactly the same material as this. And they found that that needle just crumbled away in the experiment. So the graphene material was actually stronger than the needle they were trying to measure the strength with. So they had to turn to diamond needles. And eventually they managed to puncture the hole. So this was the original hole. Now they managed to puncture a hole. So they know at which point the graphene will split. And you can determine the strength from this. And you can see here, I put a guide of other materials we're more familiar with, like uh, human hair or spider silk or diamond. You can see that graphene sits towers above them all. It's got really high strength, and the reason is because of this unusual bonding of the carbon atoms. You can see that for each carbon atom, it's got three very strong bonds to other carbon atoms, and this is the sort of really tough chemical (coughs) bond that exists, which doesn't exist in these other materials. diamond has a slightly different form of bonding of carbon, which does turn out to be slightly weaker than the graphene-type bond. So we know it's strong. What other properties does it have? Well, we can test how well it conducts, not electricity, but heat. I'll come back to why that's interesting in a minute. But what people did in this experiment was that they shined a laser... Onto the surface of graphene, which is just suspended in midair. So the laser heats the graphene, and you can look at how the temperature of this hot spot moves away from the centre. And from that, you can work out how well it conducts the heat away from the centre of the graphene. Okay, so they do a calculation, they know the power they're putting in with this laser, and other things you might. Expect to have a high thermal conductivity, like copper, for instance, is a metal. It gets extremely hot very quickly. If I make one end of a copper tube very hot, the other end gets very hot very quickly. Wood is messy. Good, I mean, if I heat one end of a piece of wood, it takes a long time for it to get hot the other end. And water, okay, another material that we know well about. But Again, graphene seems to be sitting at the top of all these materials. Quite significantly so. It conducts heat extremely well. As I said, I'll come back to why that's important technologically in a minute. But the other one is not just does it conduct heat, but does it conduct electricity? So if I take my graphene material (coughs) and I put some uh, uh, electrical connections to it, I can measure how well it conducts, how resistive it is to uh, pushing current through it. And this is a piece of graphene here with a couple of gold electrodes connected to it. So my two fingers there are, are gold electrodes. And I measure the resistance. And from that I can determine how well graphene conducts the electricity. You can see here this is, this is a measure of how well it conducts. How, how fast the current carriers move in response to an applied voltage. And I've compared it here not with metals, but with other semiconductor-type materials that are used in industry. Um, so this is the most promising one technologically before the advent of graphene, Rather again, a rather exotic material, indium antimonide. The one that's used in most, well, almost all technologies at the moment is silicon, silicon technology for computers. But it sits well, well below the graphene level. So what's, what's going on here? So graphene seems to be at the top of all these scales. So what can we use it for? So it's very conductive of heat, very conductive of, of electricity. Let's start to, to develop it into devices that might be useful uh, for the real world. So this is the sorts of things we're looking at in our research at Exeter. How the electrons, or how the current conducts through this crystal. And the way we do it, is exactly as I showed you here, we, pretty much exactly this way, deposit the graphene on the surface of, let's say, a silicon wafer, connect to it electrically, these are gold connectors here, and apply voltages, and look at the way the current moves in response to those voltages. So in this little diagram here, I have the graphene material um, connected the outside world with these gold contacts and controlled by another voltage which switches it which tries to switch it on and off if you're familiar with uh, transistors and the way they work a transistor is very much like an on-off type device uh, and it appears in all computer technology it's effectively like a tap so the current the water in the tap is just moving through the tap until I control it with the, the head of the tap there, I can turn it on and off. Rather, and you, can, you relay that to things like digital switching. On, off, zero, one. In graphene, okay, this is a low point of the resistance here for a certain voltage, and this is a high point. It's almost forming that tap-like thing, so the tap is off here, the resistance to current flow is very low. The tap is turned off, it's really screwed tight, the resistance is very high. The fact that you can use this graphene as a, a transistor, as a, as a control for current, has produced a lot of interest, both uh, commercially and, uh, um, and in research. So people are really big companies are now looking into it very seriously. Because the way the graphene conducts it has a chance to take over from silicon in some technologies, because um, initially when they reported the first transistors, IBM uh, reported the first transistors of these types, we're getting up to, let's say, 30 gigahertz. Compared to what your computers are doing at the moment, let's say 3 gigahertz, you can already see that this is a a step forward. It's starting to um, be much faster. And I went to a conference last week in, in Austria and they reported hundred and fifty gigahertz so they're starting to develop these ideas very seriously now there's more exotic things you can do um, MIT for instance looking at the way graphene can not take a signal this, is a, um, this dashed line is a, a sinusoidal signal of a voltage and graphene is able to multiply that signal up so in fact they're showing that um, again useful for uh, computing technology you can go from this low frequency and you can multiply multiply and multiply that signal and that will give you let's say capacity for processing in computers up to let's say one terahertz or even more so you can see that just this sort of material used in a very simple way even in the way that I've just shown you here you can start to think of it taking over from silicon in some technologies. Because silicon is limited. <coughs> it's not only limited... At the moment, you, 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 you probably appreciate that um, <coughs> silicon technology has come to an almost standstill that computers aren't getting much faster anymore. They're sort of limited to, this let's say, 3 gigahertz or something. One of the reasons for this is not just how small device you can make, how much you can, can track down the size of your device, but how you dissipate the heat from that device. In fact, the limitation of computing technology now is not so much on the electrical side, but actually on the heat dissipation side. You make the s- system smaller and smaller and smaller, it gets hotter and hotter and hotter. Silicon is very bad at dissipating that heat. It's very poor. So actually, as you decrease the size of your computer, it burns out. It'll actually just boil. But graphene, because it conducts heat extremely well, again, overcomes this limitation. Because it's not only the the conductor of electricity, but it's also a great conductor of heat. So again, another uh, benefit of this material... When I went to the conference last week, something interesting caught my eye in that um, people are also thinking about other ways to use graphene. And they introduced this idea of um, standards, so weights, measures, time, how is it all standardised? And they gave this example of the kilogram, which at the moment is just a piece of platinum and uh, iridium, I think, or indium. In a case in Paris, and that is the prototype kilogram. Everything is referenced with respect to this lump of metal sitting in Paris. That's what the kilogram is. It's just a lump of metal. And all over the world, the world has different copies of this kilogram to make sure that um, they all use exactly the same kilogram. And they thought, OK, we've got copies everywhere. We can just reference to our own personal copy of the kilogram, and everything will be all right but every so often they check the weights with the one in Paris every few years and you can see what's happened. Here is the year and this is the prototype kilogram, zero and when they've done these measurements of all these different kilograms they found that they start to deviate away. We're losing this kilogram so the UK kilogram could be a little bit different from the Paris kilogram. This is bad because we start to lose the sense of exactly what the kilogram is. You can see all these different uh, true kilograms are just moving away from this zero point, and they're moving away quite significantly. (coughs) Okay, in tiny amounts, but enough to be very important when you start to uh, add kilograms to kilograms, and uh, you'll get a big error. And this is because the kilogram, okay, it's picking up little dirt particles in the atmosphere, It's changing ever so slightly, and they're all changing differently. So we need standards which don't depend on just a lump of metal sitting in Paris. And, for instance, in in the case of resistance, a resistance standard, this is where graphene can help us a little bit. There are some exotic quantum mechanical processes which, in the resistance, give you very flat... Lines in the resistance. You see these little sort of flat lines. This is the resistance of a piece of gravity in very high magnetic fields. In very high magnetic fields, it just has a in a certain, you see the magnetic field here, it's just a flat line. And that flat line is related to a series of um, fundamental constants, exact fundamental constants. So if you can measure the resistance of this line perfectly, this value, then it can be a resistance standard, because this is always true, because it's related to fundamental constants. So in the National Physical Laboratory, based in London, which is where we get all our um, standards from, um, (coughs) they've started measuring graphene to look at this flat plateau region. And they have done it to enough accuracy now, it was, it was uh, reported in uh, <coughs> Nature Nanotechnology magazine at the end of last year, that they've got an accuracy of the resistance measurement down to three parts per billion. So they've really, they really know the resistance of this material. And they can use it as a resistance standard, because anyone can take this device, or one exact fairly like it, across the world, and because it's just physical constants, nothing to do with lumps of metal in Paris, it will always have the same value. Let's go back a little bit to what this material is. And <clears throat> this is graphing here, sitting across two supports. Let's say my hand's there. It sits there. It's just suspended. And you can see here, it doesn't sit in a flat way. You can see here that it has ripples across the surface. It's actually crumpled up a little bit. As I showed you at the beginning, it's quite easy for this crumpling to occur. It's not easy for me to pull this material and break it, but it's certainly easy for me to crumple it. The interesting thing is that when I crumple it, it doesn't break. It's flexible. If I put it over a hole, let's say this nice hole here on this desk, and I flatten it down, I can start to see, if I push some gas or something onto this surface, if I push down, whether anything can get through the material. How well it acts as a sort of gas filter or liquid filter. And this is what they did in this experiment. The graphene is sitting across a hole, and they push some gas up from underneath. And you can see what's happening in this electron microscope picture. The graphene is just forming a bubble on the surface. So the gas is coming up from underneath, and the graphene is stopping that gas coming through. The most interesting thing is that it stops any gas coming through. Even gases that have very little reaction at all, things like helium, which is extremely inert and gets through practically everything. If you've bought helium balloons in the past, it's very disappointing when they go flat. It's because the helium is escaping through that material. It's not a perfect uh, impermeable membrane to helium. But graphene is. For some reason, this graphene material doesn't allow any material through it at all. That can be rather useful, which we'll come back to in a little bit. Why this, this graphene sitting over a hole is interesting, well there's many applications of that. But first, let's have a look at this possible application. This is a, a thin membrane of, of graphene sitting over a hole. And if I take this graphene and I put it across a hole, it will naturally vibrate. Just as if you had a ruler at school and you twanged it. It's doing exactly the same thing here. Graphene. Sitting across there is acting like this ruler. It's got a fundamental vibration. Rather like a guitar string if you pluck it. It will always have a fundamental mode of vibration. So people try to measure this fundamental mode of vibration. And, okay, it has one resonant frequency. Much like the music of a guitar string has one particular note. But if I put a little piece of material on this surface, if I put this pen on the surface, it will change the mass and therefore it will change the frequency. So how sensitive is it to this mass? How small can I make my pen and still measure that change in frequency? Well people did this experiment. How sensitive is graphing to this change? And this here is an impressive sensitivity. So 10 to the minus 21 gram change they could measure with this one. That's something with 21 zeros in front of the 1. It's an impressive number. I don't even know if there's some uh, <coughs> nice Greek symbol to put in service so for 21, but it's so small that people just... It's, it's unimaginable. But it, it's, it's there, and I put a small molecule on the surface, and it changes the frequency, and they can measure it. So that makes it a rather interesting device. If you want to measure mass changes in a, in a system... You've got, a, system, you've got a, uh, a material that's sensitive to extremely small changes. The other thing is it's flexible and still conducting. This makes it rather interesting for more exotic types of um, electronics. Samsung, for instance, are very interested in this, in that they can start thinking of flexible displays. Displays that you could roll up and put in your pocket. It's difficult at the moment to imagine that because most materials just break down if you start trying to roll them. But graphene here just seems to flex very easily. And Samsung here are are trying to create graphene on a grand scale of uh, big rollers creating big sheets of uh, graphene. You can see here they're making little little images uh, made out of graphene on the surface of some transparent plastic. And they're starting to measure things like, what happens if you start bending this material? How does the resistance change? And does it recover if I bend it too far? What happens? They're starting to ask these questions. And they're finding that graphene is an excellent material for this type of technology. And if you, if you look, look on the internet now, uh, for, uh, on Samsung, they, they have little videos of what graphene could be like uh, if you have these flexible materials. like. Or uh, uh, like electronic newspapers you could fold up and put in your pocket and still open and still read and change exactly the way as the iPad or whatever it does, it does now, but in a flexible way. So there's serious interest in this. The other interest, mainly by say chemists and biologists now are thinking of how to use this graphene as a sensor. it was shown back a few years ago that if I take graphene and I put some electrical contacts on it, just as I said, okay, it's sensitive to very small mass changes, what about sensitive to, how many molecules is it sensitive to? What does that amount to in molecules? So if I put some molecules on the surface, so if I take my graphene, and I put uh, my molecule squash ball on there, it sits on the graphene, like that, what does it do? Okay, it changes the mass. We saw that in that mass experiment. But it also changes the resistance. You can see here, this is the change in the resistance of that graphene as a function of time in the presence of these molecules. And what happens, what you see in this sort of experiment, is little step changes in the resistance, just as a function of time. You leave your graphene open to the atmosphere, something comes along, some molecule, it sticks to the surface, it changes the resistance. waits a bit longer, another molecule comes along, sticks to the surface, it changes the resistance. What they managed to prove in this paper was that the graphene resistance is sensitive to one molecule. One molecule comes along, sits on the graphene, it changes the resistance enough to be measured. Just think of how extraordinary that is for a sensor. In, in sort of a gas environment or a liquid environment, if it was sensitive to just one molecule, and you could measure that. So, a lot of serious interest now in how that can be used practically. So, people are starting to think: oh, okay, well, what happens if we start putting liquids on the surface? Can we measure things like uh, resist, uh, changes of the resistance as a function of uh, acidity, pH? And yes, you see step changes as a function of pH value. If I put some bacteria on the surface, if I start to look at it as a biological sensor, yes, you see changes in the resistance when you start putting molecules on the surface of the graphene layer. So exciting times are coming because of the way that graphene reacts to molecules or other things sitting on its surface. Another interesting thing is if we take this to the extreme. If I heat up graphene in an atmosphere of hydrogen, what happens is that the hydrogen just binds to the surface of the graphene. And if I take my hydrogen molecules here, I put them over the surface, they actually change the chemical structure. In fact, if I did this in a very sensible and very ordered way, I would get this picture. That every carbon atom binds to a hydrogen atom. If it does that, which it does when graphene is heated, it becomes not graphene anymore. So people had to invent a new name for it. And they call it (laughs) graphene. They could change the vowel. And by changing the valve, they change this material quite extraordinarily. Because what happens is that when I bind the hydrogen to the surface, the material goes from being a metallic-like conductor to an insulating one. So you can see here what's happening is that this is the resistance, as in this case as a function of temperature, it does nothing when it's a metal. So changing the resistance. Changing the temperature for a metal does absolutely nothing to the resistance. They prove that this material is a, uh, an insulator by showing that it has a rather strong dependence on the temperature. Okay, That was the proof. But why is it useful? Well, there's a lot of green technologies coming along now. One of those technologies is hydrogen fuel cells. So this is the production of Energy from reacting uh, hydrogen and creating just water as a byproduct. So, a rather efficient way of producing electricity. And people can produce these hydrogen fuel cells, and there's been prototype ones around. Uh, you might have heard last year, I think it was, some British company called River Simple brought out a, a hydrogen fuel cell powered car. Um, people are prototyping small fuel cells for. Uh, Cell phones. The technology is there for creating the, the fuel cell itself. The problem came in trying to store the hydrogen. How do you store it? As a cylinder? This was this is this is still a problem. Of how you store the hydrogen and release it. So people are thinking of graphene. Because if we look back at this. For every carbon atom on the graphene surface, I can bind a hydrogen to it. That means the density of hydrogen is as high as the graphene itself. It's extremely high, and actually commercially, interestingly high. And people are now calculating and trying to to work out how to store uh, the hydrogen in the graphene. More importantly, though, how to release it. The great problem is that hydrogen loves to bind to graphene but the problem is it binds really well and you can't get it off again. If you want to use the hydrogen as the fuel you've got to think of ways to, to remove it. At the moment you've got to heat it up again. You've got to burn it off. You've got to heat this material a lot to get the hydrogen off. Which makes it not very useful for, you, for a fuel cell if you're trying to actually produce the electricity from this. But it was only a few months ago that papers started coming out where people have been showing that if if you bend the graphene, it will release. So there are technological ways you might be able to remove the hydrogen from the surface. But it's not well understood yet how you would do it practically. So this is the challenge. Graphene can store this hydrogen wonderfully well, the challenge now is to release that hydrogen again. Okay, people are thinking of very exotic, elaborate uh, designs for how you might store the hydrogen. I put, it, I put this picture there simply because it's pretty. It's uh, a series of graphene layers held together with carbon nanotubes. Easy to imagine theoretically, this was designed on a computer, impossible to imagine practically but it's elegant there. You can see that there are ways to even improve uh, the holding of the hydrogen to the surface. Even this theoretical picture here was showing that if you dope this material with another uh, metal, lithium in this case, the amount of uptake of hydrogen increases dramatically. So there are ways to even improve what I showed you here, how the graphene starts to to connect with the hydrogen, how it absorbs it. And there are so many possibilities with this material. It's difficult to cover them all, but... uh, okay. there's a few papers that I just put down just to show the diversity of things that people are looking at. For instance, they're looking at superconductivity in graphene. Ferromagnetism. I showed you diamagnetism of, of graphite. People are finding that graphene is ferromagnetic. Slightly different. Rather like a real magnet. Rather than one that's just pushing away. They've shown that it luminesces. It actually produces light. The last one is rather interesting. That's why I'll uh, uh, I'll spend a little bit of time on this one. Because it's, it's really come to the fore in the last year. How graphene really might be useful in the near future. And one of, the, one of the great challenges in science at the moment is, let's say, rapid sequencing of DNA. At the moment it's a very long, it's a laborious process of deconstructing the DNA and having to read all the different constituents of the DNA. Why, is, why might graphene be useful? Well, the interesting thing about graphene is that it's one atom thick. And if I can imagine an experiment, like the following. If I take two pieces of graphene, and I look at them from the front, the thickness of the graphene is one atom. So if, for instance, I take one part of my DNA molecule, and I make a split in the graphene, and I drop it through, that would change the conductance between here and here. We saw that before. And if I take another part of the DNA sequence, if I take a shot of gold and I pass it through, that will have a different reaction. The resistance will change differently. So the interesting thing is that if I can make a hole in graphene, and pass a DNA molecule through it, just pull it through, I could read it rather like a tape head. I could pull it through and measure the resistance as a function of the distance along the DNA molecule. And I could literally read out the DNA molecule as a function of distance. That's the idea of rapid. In other words, I can do it almost very quickly indeed. And, okay, in last year's few magazine covers showing that this is a real possibility. And people are thinking about this quite, quite seriously now and it's because of the fact of two things one that graphing conducts and the other that it's as a read head like, unlike the tape which is roughly macroscopic the read head is one atom so the resolution can be literally the size of the, each element of the DNA molecule so there's really exciting times there if we can get this uh, type of uh, sequencer to work and there's quite a few groups around the world now trying to, to do just that. And we're part of that. And in two th- and around the world, people are, 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 are seriously investing money, in America yeah. especially. And in the UK, multi-million pound investments into this material now to look at its possibilities. And in 2009, uh, we started a collaboration with with, with Bath University, to really explore this material from the ground up. So we've involved various um, schools, both in Bath and in Exeter, and you can see from my talk that it, it's really sort of bringing the sciences together. So it's bringing together chemistry and engineering and physics, all, all combining onto this one material because of its, its different, its sort of strange properties. So we're looking at it right from starting with the production and fabrication of this material. Um, Then, this is my main area, this experimental work on trying to understand what's actually going on in the crystal itself. And we're starting to explore the possible devices that we can make out of this material. So to come to this, this summary at the moment, we want to say that graphing, okay, we, we've seen that it's electrically conductive and also thermally, both of these are important, the transparency will be important for, let's say, flexible electronics or LCDs even, just in, in a simple way, and that's been shown to be possible. The flexibility gives you more dimensions to your electronics, so this flexible technology will be something that takes off in the near future. And this idea of sensors, this DNA sequencing, uh, just simple chemical sensors, are not too far away. It's been already been proved that uh, this material can act as a sensor. And this other possibility of hydrogen storage. One of the big challenges now, though, especially for the commercial side, is trying to say, right, okay, I can't... In IBM, you're not going to have people sitting around in clean rooms exfoliating graphene with bits of sticky tape. It's just not going to be commercially viable. And there are methods now of trying to produce graphene on a large scale. I showed you this one picture from Samsung where they're trying to produce it on a very big scale. But interestingly, the quality of the graphene produced by these bigger scale methods tends to be much poorer than what nature provides. Nature provides some beautiful graphene crystals of reasonable size for research. Not good size for commercial applications, but beautiful crystals for research. And these other large-scale methods don't produce the same quality of crystals yet on, the, on a large scale. So we had to ask ourselves, if we want this beautiful crystal of graphene, Surely it's very easy. easy. I take a pencil and I, I rub it on the surface. It's quite cheap. We could we could do this quite easily. We have to understand really what the cost is, in fact. So if I took my pencil, how much graphene is in this pencil? That was a question I asked myself for some coffee break at one point. And <laughs> If I took my HB pencil, and I I, I found the the dimensions of this pencil, and I know the size of graphene, I can work out the area of graphene I could get from this pencil. If I spread it out all over this desk, which I I could do if I had to, uh, I would actually cover three football pitches worth of graphene. Spread out single crystal graphene just from this one pencil. Interestingly, people, not long after it was discovered, started selling this on the internet. In that people are so interested in using graphene as prototype devices, they're quite happy to um, buy on the internet some devices that are created just by the sticky tape method. And you'll see, if you look on the internet, you'll find pictures of silicon crystals with bits of graphene on and a price. How expensive is it? Well, I looked today, even in the prices still quoted, at three pounds a square micron. (laughs) So this is one thousandth of a millimetre a micron, and it's one square micron is three pounds. So what does that uh, calculate as if I think of how much graphene is in my pencil? Well, it turns out (coughs) that my pencil is worth... Six billion, billion pounds. So if everyone in the world had a billion pounds, they could buy this pencil off me. So I will leave you with this thought that if you would like to buy it off me at the end of this lecture, you're quite welcome. Otherwise I will stop there, so thank you very much.